and worship team and uh, Burkina team, and we're excited for you guys. Thank you for being here this morning, making it happen. Uh, man, you guys are you're going to have an awesome time. I have no doubt about that, and our hope is it changes you uh, as well as it will help the people that you're going to be connecting with. All right, hey, welcome this morning to Grace Point Church. Again, my name is Tim Rogers, lead pastor here. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us here this morning, or if you're listening later online, um, thank you for listening where you are and what you're doing. Um, you have found us in the second part of a seven-part series called The Seven. The Seven is a series in which we're looking at the seven deadly sins, and we're doing that in order to help us see how sin has impacted our ability to relate to one another and to God. It's as simple as that. We're using the seven deadly sins to look at how sin impacts our ability to relate to one another and our ability to relate to God. One of the things we talk about at Grace Point is one of our core values is to live fearlessly, to, to, to speak openly, and, and to forgive generously. And in order to, to live fearlessly and, and speak honestly and openly, we have to have a continuing conversation about how to grow together in personal relationship more and more genuinely. Okay? Because if you were here last week, you'll remember this. If you weren't, this will be new for you. Last week, we talked about at the very beginning of this series that we were kind of made up here, if you will, that we were made in creation. Um, this is, represents how God created the world and humanity. He made us up here in what you might want to call mint condition. Rolled off the assembly line, if you will, perfect. Nothing wrong with us at all. And it wasn't long, if you know the story of creation at all, um, where Adam took a bite of the apple, Eve took a bite of the apple, if you will, and, and now sin has entered the world, disobedience entered the world, and we move from kind of a, a mint condition up here to for lack of a better term, kind of the muck condition of down here, where we live in a world now where we live in the muck of sin, the mire of sin, and this is where we are. And we can think that this, because this is all we know, we can think this is how we were made to be. We can think that sin is normal and that everybody deals with it, therefore I just need to get used to living in this world that I'm in. And the problem with that is whenever we experience sin and the impact of sin, we actually experience it something less than what it means to be human. So sin actually doesn't make us human. The image of God in us is what makes us human. So every time we experience sin, we are experiencing less than what God designed us to be. Muck condition, not mint condition. And so let me just kind of, by, um, to try to drive this point home a little bit, let me ask you this, and no raise of hands, and don't nudge anybody next to you or look funny at somebody else on this one, okay? Just kind of keep this to yourself. But, but how many of you would say that this week you have been sinless? Okay. <laughs> we got, got one guy in the back raising his hand. Okay, don't, don't do that. Um, so, in your minds, I, I, I would doubt that any of you would say, yep, this... This is me. I, I've been sinless. But let me ask you this. Let me follow that up with this. If you know in your mind and if you know in your heart that this week there's been attitudes that you've had that have been just misplaced, there have been judgments that you've had that have been prejudicial, All right, there's been ways that you've handled your money that have been short-sighted, there's been prayerlessness, there's been things you haven't done that you know you should have done, All right? There's been a thought or two that's kind of run through in terms of temptation in your mind that you acted on and you, I wish I wouldn't have, but I did. So all of us, okay, I can't imagine a scenario where any of us can sit here on a Sunday morning and say, yep, sinless week for me. But let me ask you this. How many of us then, if we feel like, no, haven't been sinless this week, then how many of us have had conversations this week with people? 
in which we've confessed those sins to one another. Can you recall the conversation this week when you confessed that sin? See, here's the problem with us, is we don't often know how to talk about the sin that's a part of our lives, and yet we all live with it, right? And what that can create is a culture where we don't talk about the things that hurt us most deeply. And it can feel like, especially when you walk into a church building, it can feel like, well, no one else is talking about it. Why would I talk about mine? Everyone else must be fine. I'm not going to say anything about mine. And then when I ask a question like I did last week, there's something that runs into your mind very quickly. When I ask the question, hey, what is one thing that you can't confess in church, that you can't talk about in church? What's one thing you can't talk about in church? Almost everybody immediately has something. Oh, I could never talk about this. I mean, I, I could never, if people only knew what I really thought about that, then I can't imagine what my people, my, my Sunday school class, my friends, my small group, what my neighbors would think about me if I actually said that. I can't imagine what that would be like. See, all of us have those things that we think, I can't hear. And what that creates in us, sin creates that distance between me and you. It creates a lack of trust between me and you. It creates lack of vulnerability and lack of openness. And then we begin to operate in the muck down here and think, well, this is all that there is. This is what we're made for. And it's actually less than what we're made for. We're made for the mint condition of living out the image of God, but we operate kind of in the muck down here. Okay? So the seven deadly sins, we're talking about different ways, different sins to look at that we can begin to say, okay, maybe this is something that I need to deal with in terms of confession so that I become someone who grows in my ability to relate to one another and to relate to my God and hopefully kind of return, even just take a step closer to humanity, to the fullness of life and joy and hope that God has made us for. Okay? So last week we talked about pride, and none of us dealt with that issue. And um, there's a couple of us, but we weren't willing to acknowledge it. Today, smattering of laughter around the group, that was kind of neat. Today we're talking about envy. Okay, today we're talking about envy. Um, so repeat, repeat, finish this phrase for me, if you will. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? I, I gave confusing instructions. I first said repeat, then I said fill it in. But you know what it is, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. How's it finish? Who's the fairest of them all, right? So from little on up, we have the reality of envy being discussed, even in Disney movies, right? With that queen and, and uh, Cinderella. No, not Cinderella. Snow White, yeah. Pick, pick a Disney character. I've been envious of all the princesses, so I, that's my, my, my thing. Um, so the, the queen, you know the deal. She says, hey, to the huntsman, I want you to go out. And I've been told there's this, this um, the princess. Get the princess, and I want you to kill her. And I want you to bring back her heart in this box. Talk about envy gone wild, envy gone crazy. This is envy on steroids. Bring back her heart. I want proof that the one who could be better than me is gone. And this is what envy does. And so we're going to talk about envy this way. And this actually definition of envy is from of all people, Aristotle, okay, this is going to make you feel really smart today, but he really kind of nails it. He says this, envy is pain at the good fortune of others. Think about what in the world envy is, pain at the good fortune of others. So in other words, it's not just jealousy. It's kind of like jealousy, but not just like it. See, jealousy is that I want the car that you want or that you have. I see your car or I see your house or I see your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and I think, I want that. Envy, envy says, I don't want you 
to have that. Envy takes it further, and it doesn't just want the object, doesn't just want the, the new phone or the new computer or the new whatever, the, the nice car or whatever. It's not just that I, I would love to have that, because jealousy is like, hey, if only I had a house like that, I would be satisfied. And hey, maybe you would be for a little bit. But envy goes further. It's like, I don't even want you to be satisfied with what you have. So not only do I want my girlfriend back, I want you never to be able to date anybody ever again in your whole life. That's what envy does. It turns it back to the adversary in a way that is really amazingly unhealthy. So the question is this, um, how does it show up and where does it show up in our lives? And if this is true, if what Aristotle says is true, pain at the good fortune of others. Envy shows up anywhere where good fortune does. Envy shows up anywhere where good things happen. So you can talk about um, body envy, right? Man. If only I would look as beautiful as she does. I mean, look at her hair. I think that a lot. <laughs> and he's so strong and powerful and, you know, fast and good at what he does. I mean, and it, he makes so much money. I just need to... He doesn't deserve, you know, what he makes. She doesn't deserve him for a husband at all. I mean, I cannot believe that he is still with her. I can't believe that she is still with him. I mean, they're home. Are you kidding me? I can't. Do you know that they drive that? Seriously, they drive that? I cannot believe. I mean, of all the people, do you know how hard we've worked? And they drive, are you serious? Hey, maybe if I, uh, you know, wouldn't blow, uh, you know, didn't have, didn't have kids, I could blow all my money on vacations too, like, like they do. I cannot believe that about them. You know that they're going that place again? They put their pictures on Facebook again and Instagram again. Are you kidding me? I mean, envy shows up anywhere good fortune does. Hey, they're having a baby. We haven't been able to. Are you kidding me? Again? Anywhere, anywhere where anything good happens. I mean, you know this, right? You know this, you feel this. Envy shows up in our hearts, and it's that gut reaction that I can't, I can't believe that they get and I don't. I can't believe that they have and I don't. And here's why this is important. How many of you all know people who are what you'd consider, and you don't, again, don't name names. If you're sitting next to one of these people, don't do anything, okay, keep it really anonymous. But how many of you all know somebody in your life who you consider a grumpy old person? Come on now. No one knows a grumpy old person. Who knows a grumpy old person? All right? I'm not saying you need to point them out. I mean, it could be somebody you've seen on TV, okay? Like, I don't even, they're not, no one in my family, okay? See, here's the thing. Here's why this matters. You know where grumpy old people come from? Envious young people who never deal with their envy. And you just grow up to become a grumpy old person. That's exactly where they come from. And they're just, they don't just fall out of the sky. People become bitter when they don't deal with their envy. And they just get older and more and more bitter. And so grumpy old people come from envious young people who don't know how to deal with their envy and don't even recognize that it's there in the first place. Now, at one level, here's, I, I care about this for you because I don't want you to grow into a grumpy old person. Okay, that, That's one level. But the other level is this. The bigger deal for that is that if you say to me that you're a follower of Jesus... Here's why I don't want you to become a grumpy old person. Because your attitude reflects that of your Savior. 
And that, to me, is a big deal. That if you become marked somehow as somebody who's bitter, who's pessimistic, who's, who's angry at life and the world and wishes things would be different, then that is how people will see your Savior and will see Jesus. And to me, that's where that becomes a problem. And this is why it matters. That if we don't deal with envy, it will absolutely rot you out from the inside out. And it's going to turn you into a grumpy old person. And at, at a kind of ethical, moral level, I, I don't really care if you become grumpy or not, but I do care if you say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Then to me, now you don't have the right, and I don't have the right just to grow up and become grumpy and bitter. I don't have that right because I bear the name of someone greater than me. And this is why it's so important to figure out where is this envy kicking into my life and where does it subtly come into play in what I, what I have and what I do. And here's what I want to say about envy early on. That envy, it hollows us out with a hammer of selfishness and the, the chisel of bitterness. That envy hollows us out beating away with the hammer of, I want, I want, I want, I want, I deserve, I, I, I. And the chisel, the sharp chisel of bitterness, I deserve. When you combine I want and I deserve together, you get the hammer of I want, I want, I want, I want, hitting this sharp chisel of I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, and it cuts away your soul. It cuts away your joy. It cuts away your identity. And it just hollows us out from the inside out. The Bible has a lot to say about envy. We're going to look at a couple passages this morning. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a ton of biblical characters that have wrestled with envy from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Um, the fall, okay, impacted Cain and Abel, their sons. I mean, that story is a story of, of envy. Cain being jealous and envious of Abel and his sacrifice. We have the envy of, of um, Joseph and the coat of many colors and his brothers who wanted him dead and were willing to sell him into slavery just to kind of get rid of the jealousy and envy of dad. You have Haman in the story of Esther who ended up getting himself hung by the results of his own envy. You got Saul, um, the king of Israel who, was, who, who his life turned after there was a parade in his hometown and the parade was after David killed Goliath and, and the women are singing in the streets, Hey, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Like, good try, King David. This little shepherd boy is ten times better than you. Woo! And, and envy creeps in and it kills. It rots Saul out from the, the core. Envy is throughout the scriptures and all kinds of biblical characters. This morning we're going to land in one passage, but we're going to kind of fly through two others to kind of get a hold of envy and where it comes from. And the first passage that I want to go with you is just up here, so you don't have to turn quite yet, but kind of get your Bible on the ready because we're going to go into the New Testament in a minute. But we're going to drop first into um, a psalm. You, you, if you want to turn, you can. It's going to all be up on the screen. But this psalm is um, Psalm number 73, and it's a psalm of Asaph. And I'll explain to you who this guy is in a minute. So here's, here's what Asaph begins by saying. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And this seems like a, a good enough start, doesn't it, uh, to a psalm. This is a good way to begin. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. There's a conflict, and he begins in verse 2, he says this, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. So if you can imagine uh, trying to place your feet um, even outside on an icy patch uh, today, 
or yesterday, and you think that it's solid footing, and all of a sudden, wow, you're gone, and your, your weight has shifted, and your balance is off. Asaph is um, experiencing that. He's saying, God is good to Israel, therefore I'm kind of placing my expectation on him solidly. But, but as for me, my feet almost slipped, like something caused me almost to fall. I was thinking that he was good, but something happened. And Asaph, you should know, was about 20-ish years old when David brought him into his kingdom. Um, Asaph was um, a member of the tribe of Levi, the kind of priestly tribe of the nation of Israel. And he was brought in to be the first worship leader for David. Kind of interesting. So he would be, if Asaph were here this morning, he would be Jan, just kind of a funny mental picture. Anyhow. He's the worship leader for, for the kingdom, okay? And uh, his job is to put a lot of music to, or a lot of poetry to music. And Asaph actually outlives David, um, because he was brought up when he was 20 and David was older. And Asaph lives into Solomon's reign, the next king. Um, Asaph, we believe, actually experiences the, the murder of his brother under Solomon's regime. It's kind of hard to imagine that. So... He's experiencing, he's seeing a, a king after God's own heart. And you can imagine being in that kingdom, and David does all kinds of things that are really crazy, including adultery and then murder and covering that up. And then, and then Solomon comes into play, and Solomon, supposedly the wisest man next to Jesus on the planet, he does some really dumb things. You just don't marry a thousand women. It's usually not a good idea. Just that's a little life advice for you this morning, in case you didn't know that, that tip. Not a good plan. And Asaph sees all these things, and then his brother is killed, and he begins to wonder. You ever get disillusioned? Okay? And he begins to wonder, like, God, are you still there, and what's going on in the world? My feet are kind of beginning to slip. I thought that you were for the good of Israel. And then, here's what happens to him. Verse 3, he goes on, he says, For, here's why, for I envied, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever, you ever feel that way? Come on, come on, God. Seriously, that guy has $58 million, and I'm trying to make 100 bucks this weekend. And he's an idiot. I mean, if only I were entrusted with that kind of money. Are you kidding me, the kind of impact I could make? This guy, what? I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity. You ever feel that way? Come on now, you know you have, right? That, that, you're trusting them with how much money, God? God, have we talked recently? Do you understand? what they do. Okay, and then he goes on. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. You ever feel that way about people? <laughs> Their life is all set. They've got no problems. They don't have any struggles. Like their bodies, look how strong they are and young. They're just healthy. They just don't have the problems that I have. Then he continues. He said, hey, they're free. It's like they're free from common human burdens. They're not even plagued by human ills. It's like they're made of Teflon, and everything just kind of rolls off of them. God, like, come on. I envied the arrogant. I mean, honestly, if we can't find ourselves within the words of Asaph, we're just not awake, alert, or engaged with reality, because I think we've all felt this, right, toward people. Like, God, come on. Really? Like, look at my struggles. And them? Seriously, them? They get all that? And then to add to it, you know what, God, people actually like them. They like being around them. There's a lot of people who hang out with them. And he goes on in verses 9 and 10, and here's what Asaph says. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. 
poetic language. In other words, they are big mouths. They're, they are saying things that are like, they're, that are claiming that they have almost the ability to deliver what heaven can deliver. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Hey, you want anything in the world? I got it for you. I got the resources. I got the money. Then he goes on and he says this in verse 10. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. In other words, people like being around these people. And Asaph is like, I envied them. And I'm like, man, thank you, Asaph, for putting what I feel into words. Thank you for being honest. I'm with you. Yes, I have envied people who have had more money than I have. I have envied people who have looked better than I have. I have envied people who I think are healthier than I will ever be. I have envied people who seem like they're never going to have the problems that I do. And I have wondered, God, where are you? Do you not understand what I could do if you could trust me with that kind of thing? And then the book of Proverbs reminds us of this reality. Proverbs 14.30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. But envy rots the bones. And so with that background, what I want to do is ask the question of how can we see in our lives where envy really lands? Where can we see it? And with that, I want you, if you have your Bible with you, to turn to the New Testament book of James. James chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you in the pew around you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you today. You can have that Bible, take that um, home with you, keep that as our gift to you. Okay? James chapter 3 is in the last kind of quarter, the right quarter of your, your Bible. Um, if you find the book of Hebrews in there, just go one further, you'll find James. And James is a brother of Jesus. So again, I think he has some authority to speak to, um, to spiritual things and spiritual realities. So here's what... Here's what James uh, has to say in James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Three verses. A lot of truth, a lot of power in this. First of all, verse 14. James is saying, listen, if you harbor envy, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, in other words, imagine envy as a boat that is coming through your heart. And you have the choice when it comes through. Am I going to give this thing harbor or not? We rarely have the choice. We rarely can stop it from coming by. Right? I mean, the intuitive reaction when other people have something really good that I wish I had, the intuitive reaction is, oh, good for you, and what about me? I mean, there's going to be that part of us that's there. But the question is, when that ship comes sailing by, am I going to give it harbor to unload its contents in my heart or not? Do not harbor, he says, bitter envy or selfish ambition in your hearts. And then he says two things at the end of that verse. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. It's a curious statement. Don't boast about it. How many of you know someone who boasts about envy? Right? Like, what do they do? Like, I've got envy. Yes, I do. I've got envy. How about you? You know, it, it doesn't, 
it doesn't work that way. I mean, what in the world do you mean, James? Like, don't boast about envy. Who does that? And the answer is, everybody who's envious does that. Have you ever made the statement? When you're looking at a promotion or an increase in pay, you're trying to get a job and someone else does, well, if they want to settle for that person, they can. If my boss just knew what he was dealing with, my boss is a terrible evaluator of talent. Yeah, hey, I know my girlfriend broke up with me, but hey, she goes out with somebody, he's just getting the leftovers. (laughs) Just getting the leftovers. Yeah, well, you know, my body could look like hers if I didn't have kids. Yeah. See, we never boast about envy, do we? See, all of that stuff is just screaming out, I'm envious. Like, well, of course he makes that much money. He cuts corners in his business. I mean, are you kidding me? If he ran business like I did, why don't you just say it? I wish I had his money. Just say it. I wish I had her body. I mean, just say it that I wish I had more kids like they do. Just say it, like I wish that my house were as big as they were. I mean, come on, we all know that is exactly what boasting about envy is. Maybe just put it right out there. This is envy, boasting about myself because I feel inferior to what you have. It's starting to rot me, chisel away. I want and I deserve chiseling away who I am. Just don't boast about it. But then he says, secondly, don't deny it, right? Don't boast about it and don't deny the truth. So some of us are smart enough to know that I shouldn't post on Facebook or Instagram or whatever when I'm angry and feel jealous, right? I kind of know not to say that. And so we tend to think, well, it's not really in my heart because I don't ever talk to anybody anyway. Therefore, I don't have envy. I've never said those things. And we all know it doesn't take, need the words to have the emotion or the feeling that's in there. And, And James is saying, listen, Don't deny. Don't deny that envy exists. Don't deny it. Don't boast about it. Don't deny it. Begin to own it. Then he goes on to say, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In other words, there's going to be people who are going to tell you, you know what, you're right. You're right. Let me give you some advice here. You're right. You're right. You're right that she's not good enough for you. And, and you're, you're right that you run a great home compared to them over there. And you're, you're right that your business is better. And you're right, you know, that you deserve more. You're right. And what James is saying here is, listen, the people in your life who emphasize your rights over your responsibilities are giving you wisdom that is unspiritual, ungodly, and un- unhelpful. The people who are kind of saying, yeah, you know what, you're right, you do deserve more. You do deserve more. Yeah, I mean, she was a loser. He was a loser. How dare you even think about learning something about yourself in that relationship? The wisdom that comes from this world is saying, listen, you've got the right for more. You deserve more. Of course you do. And, and James is saying, no, 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 that, that doesn't come down from heaven. And then he finally says this in verse 16, where you have envy and you have selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And hasn't this happened to every biblical character that's ever dealt with envy, is that disorder begins to come into life. Doesn't this happen when envy comes in? 
when all of a sudden my life, the things that I should be pursuing, kind of get jumbled up and out of order because I begin to pursue I begin to pursue the things that I think I deserve rather than beginning to live my life at peace with who I am and in peace with understanding that God is enough for me. That my life becomes out of order, it's disorderly, when I begin to pursue something that I think will make me happy that you have. That I begin to pursue life so that I can figure out a way to kind of get after whatever your happiness is. That I begin to reprioritize and change things that I shouldn't change. In other words, I lose my focus and my attention, my priority on being satisfied with who God is. Because I pursue this idea, this idea, that idea, this idea, that person, this thing, and my life begins to fall apart around me. Because envy takes the hammer of selfishness with a chisel of bitterness and begins to cut away at my life. So here's where we're at. If we come back, if you will, um, to the question, what do I do about it? I want to come back to our friend Asaph. Asaph, at the end of Psalm 73, kind of came up with his own conclusion to the matter. And here's what he said in verses uh, 25 and 26. And he asked the question as he got done processing the the psalm he was writing. He asked this question here. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And then he makes a statement. And earth, check out that, that statement here. Earth has nothing that I desire besides you. Earth, earth has nothing. There's nothing that I desire besides you. See, early on in the, the psalm, his foot slipped because he was envious of the arrogant and envious of the people who had more and, and looked better and were smarter and stronger. And he was envious of what they had and how they could work, how they could live, how they could make friends, how they had so many people following them on Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is. And they had so many people who liked them And then finally he comes back here and he says this. Okay, you know what? At the end of the day, who who do I have in heaven but you? And and on earth, there's nothing here that I desire besides you. And then he makes a statement, really profound statement, that is hard for me to put my mind around. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh, my heart may fail. In other words, I'm, I'm going to get old. I'm going to look worse than I do today. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to start going, quote-unquote, downhill. My desire to push on and drive and succeed and plan is going to diminish over time. And maybe I'll finish. Who knows what I'm going to finish like? Asaph has seen men and women finish well and finish poorly saying, all that stuff is going to change. But God, but God, is the strength of my heart. And he, he is my portion forever. And, and I don't know, and I don't know any better antidote for envy than to be able to say something like what Asaph said. And I, and I also don't know how deeply challenging it is to say something like Asaph said and mean it. That of all the other things in this life that challenge me, that vie for my attention, that I can say, God, God is my portion forever. 
It sounds good on a Sunday morning, right? But you and I know that we are here an hour, two, or three a week, and life is lived in all the moments in between. That God is my portion forever. Now, envy, if it's true, that it takes the hammer of selfishness and the chisel of bitterness and rots away my life and hollows me out. Here's what Asaph is saying. You want to focus on something? Let's focus on this. Let's focus on God is my portion forever. Of all the things that want to harbor in my life and pull in and say, yep, her body is better than mine. Her hair is better than mine. His abilities are better than mine. His business is better than mine. Their home is better than mine, right? Their kids are smarter than mine and more obedient than mine. And their car is whatever and their vacations are better and their attitudes are better and more people like them. Whenever that ship of envy comes kind of rolling through, He's saying, hey, don't let it stop. Don't let it harbor here. Don't let it harbor here. But here's the problem. With envy, when I have envy between me and you, it creates a deceit in our relationship. Okay? You don't know when I'm envying you, and I don't know when you're envying me. And it, envy grows in between us in, in an environment that's very passive-aggressive, where I can shake your hand after Sunday morning and completely be envying you. Because of whatever. You name it. Anything good in your life, I could be envying. And so I can shake your hand and smile and say hi and and all that. And I can go home and even in my own heart know that, man, I just wish that he weren't so happy. I wish that she weren't so joyful because I want that. Okay? And so envy can just sneak in between us and can create a distance in our relationships that isn't meant to be there. We were made in mint condition and we live in the muck condition. Okay? And envy creates that wedge that space between me and you where it's like mm, the ability to relate openly and honestly to each other. Envy loves to live in the grass and get you. Say, oh, yeah, you can only be so close to them because if they know what you wished you had in their lives, mm, this thing wouldn't happen. And so one of the things that we talk about in the series is not just trying to help us see the power of a sin but also then on the flip side to talk about how do I deal with that. And so in the so what here, this is just kind of what I want to hit real quick. So what do I do? I want to begin this way, saying confession, and you know this already, but this is why you probably haven't done it a lot, why I wrestle and fight through my own struggle with it, is that confession takes guts and takes more guts than you think it does. It just does. Because not only do we not like to confess when we failed, if you're honest, Here's what I realize is that I don't even like to confess when I've been tempted to fail, right? Like, let, I don't even like to confess and say that I've blown it, let alone say that I've thought about blowing it. I mean, I would rather you know that I don't ever think about sin, even it doesn't even come into my life at all, but hey, let's talk. What's going on for you? See, in 1 John 1, 8, reminds us, hey, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself, and you're, you're a liar. So here we are, a bunch of sinners, you and me, gathered around together, and what do we do? Do we confess to one another? No. Because it takes too much guts. It takes too much vulnerability to do this well. It just takes a, a ton of courage to do this, to do this well. I'm just going to start there. Secondly, let me, let me go this on envy. I want to encourage you to start writing. In other words, before we just launch into this all-out confessional where we just are spilling guts to one another and, you know, number one, that's not going to happen. Number two, that's not healthy to do that um, in just a kind of broad carte blanche way. 
but I want to encourage you to start writing, okay? Write out, okay, here's, here's where I think, as you're listening to this message on envy now, here's where I think that I am most susceptible, most tempted to, to envy, to think about. You don't even need, right now, okay, you don't even need to confess that to anybody. You don't even need to talk to God about that. You don't even need to tell anybody about that. We're just, I'm just saying, why not just write it out and at least what James says there, don't deny it and don't boast about it, but at least begin to own it and, and write it out. Now, if you have the courage to go further, let's go further. And that is this, the question of who can you trust? Okay? Now, not, confession is not meant for everybody, to everybody at every level. There are different levels of, and layers of confession that are appropriate and helpful depending on what the, the sin is, what the problem is, the, the scope of the sin and all that. But the question is simply, who can you trust? So in other words, is there somebody in your life that you can say, you know what, I need to. I need to arrange a meeting. I, I need to go over and grab coffee. I need to have them over for, for a meal. Or I need to go out and whatever men do, you know, we, we shoot things together and talk about things while we're killing stuff. Um, you know, whatever we need to do. But let's set up a time where we can find somebody, just one person. Okay, this is that next step of, of courage. Okay, the first step is just own it and write it. The next step is maybe there's somebody. Maybe there's somebody that I can trust. And then finally, it's really simple. You know, do it. Now, that was really profound. That was a hard one to write. But just, just, just do it. Pull the trigger. Okay? Live fearlessly. Speak openly and forgive generously. And all those have to go together. If I'm going to speak openly, I need to know that you are going to forgive generously. Because if I think that you're not going to forgive me generously, I'm not going to speak openly to you, right? And that's going to all require that I, first of all, live fearlessly and be willing to say, you know what, I can trust this person enough. I'm going to write something down, and we're just going to go and do it. Because if it's true that I was made for mint condition, okay, and that is reality, and I live down here, I don't want to live in the muck. Because, again, what's at stake? What's at stake is that Young people who don't deal with envy grow into old people who are bitter, angry, and grumpy. And not only is that a problem kind of in our social world, it's a problem because if we say we follow Jesus, all of a sudden our world sees the kind of Jesus that is, that is grumpy, angry, critical, bitter. Because a heart at peace, a heart at peace finds rest. A heart focused on God finds that rest and peace, but envy rots the bones. Envy takes that hammer of selfishness, I want, I want, I want, with the chisel of bitterness and says, you deserve, you're right, you want it and you deserve it. Make it happen. And I'm just saying, when it comes to, when it comes to our community life and confession, here's what I want to encourage you to do. At least begin, at least begin to write it down and to own it. Begins to make a conversation easier when you sit down with someone and say, you know what, hey, can I talk to you? Here's what's going on in my life. I just want you to know. Here's some things I wrote it down in that message Sunday about envy. Here's what I had to write down. Blah, 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 blah. And I just want to ask you to help me. Pray for me when I come to mind. Encourage me. Because I don't want this envy to hollow me out with selfishness and bitterness. I don't want to grow into someone who's old and angry and bitter about this life in this world because I want my life to matter for my Savior for eternity. Okay? Envy will hollow us out with a hammer of selfishness and a chisel of bitterness. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to, to be here as a people, to listen, to grow, to be uh, reminded of the truth of your word from both Asaph's
pen, as well as James. This kind of dialogue and community life takes courage. Uh, it takes someone who's willing to risk, because this is new. Most conversations do not include confession. Most of us do not walk around during the course of the week and begin to think, how can I confess to one another? And yet, we all acknowledge that we live in a sinful world where we are sinning. And yet, without the mechanism to confess, to deal with it, to move out of the muck and into a greater awareness of how you've made us. And so I pray that you would give us the guts and the courage not someone around me, but give us, those individuals this morning who are saying, I need to, I need to do this. Give them that final nudge into this where they can begin to write, begin to pray and ask, who is it that I need to trust? Who is it that I need to trust? A spouse? A friend? A parent? A family member? A pastor? Who can I trust that I need to confess with? Not for the sake of rolling out all my shame and guilt, but for the sake of restoring a relationship, of strengthening the bond, of encouraging one another in all that we do. Father, we know that you are a strong, powerful, and awesome God, and we want our lives to reflect your strength, your power, your glory, your majesty, your awesomeness. We do not want our lives to be marked by petty envy and jealousy that sneaks in and even deceives us. We know that you're an awesome God, and I pray that you would give us the courage to deal with the things that take us off track from reflecting your power, your strength, and your glory to this world. Give us that courage today, I pray in Jesus' name.